Are you struggling to get your project off the ground? Is the term research a dirty word? Need help finding more resources? Hello, everybody. This is Nadine Rosenblum for the Center for Nursing Inquiry. I'm a nursing inquiry coordinator, and with me here for the podcast today is Maddie Whalen, our evidence-based practice coordinator. Hi, Maddie. Hello. Um, so we're talking about the appendices in the fourth edition of the Johns Hopkins Evidence-Based Practice for Nurses and Healthcare Professionals Model and Guidelines. Um, and we have gone through the first several appendices together through the P and the E of the PET process. And so now we're starting on the T, the translation section, or part of the process. And we start there with Appendix I, Translation and Action Planning Tool. So, Maddie, can you introduce this tool to us and tell us kind of what it's about? Yeah, for sure. So this is sort of where the like rubber meets the road in terms of your EVP project. So we've done all the other steps to define our problem, appraise the evidence, and then generate a summary and synthesis and best evidence recommendations. And now this is the part where we're really seeing what does that mean for our setting, our department, our hospital, what's this going to look like for us? So we're in that T of the PET process of translation. And this tool is a pretty long tool, and it helps us think through kind of what the next steps would be. Should we really move forward with the translation? What does the recommendation look like for our setting? And then a couple of project planning tools to sort of help you think through what your next steps will be in terms of actually putting it into place. That sounds like a, a lot to do for one single tool. So let's get right into it. Um, it looks like we're starting with page one. And there's a flow chart here to use. So how does the directions here walk us through this? So this first page, it kind of seems like a lot, but really it's just being very explicit and granular about using that flow chart. So if you remember in Appendix H, the last thing we did was characterize the evidence, and we picked one of four options. We picked um, that the evidence is either strong and compelling with consistent results, good and consistent, good and conflict, but conflicting, or little to no. So we're just going to transpose whatever we had selected on H onto this tool. So we'll check the box. Um, and then we need to think, the next question is, what is the level of safety risk associated with the intervention? So I think sort of intuitively we know that something that is higher risk is going to need more compelling high-level evidence than something that is low risk. So if you're thinking about, like, your own care, how comfortable would you feel with having a new person pull out your chest tube versus having something like recording a um, experience diary while in the ICU, right? So you probably want some really strong evidence to have someone new discontinue your chest tube, whereas you can maybe have a little bit lower quality evidence. It can be maybe a little bit less compelling if you're doing something that poses minimal risk, like maybe taking it, uh, keeping an ICU diary, um, things like that. And so we actually have a heat chart in the book that displays this really well, and it's not on the tool itself, but it basically walks us through when it would be okay to move forward based on how the evidence is characterized as well as the level of risk associated with it. And the, it's hard to kind of, maybe if you're imagining it, we still do want to remember that even though something might be low risk, it doesn't necessarily mean that we want to move forward. Because even if something's low risk, if there's no evidence to support it, 
we're still wasting resources. And so it is the sort of this combination between um, the level of risk as well as having evidence. And honestly, it doesn't really matter the level of risk if there is no evidence to support what we might be doing. So we're going to pick the characteristics of the evidence. We're going to pick if it's high or low risk. And then we're going to use that to follow the triangles in our flow chart and decide what our next step is. And so how do we do that? So we really are just sort of looking at what we selected up for the characteristics of the evidence. So we'll pick that triangle. And then if it's strong and compelling with consistent results, really the risk um, doesn't matter. Uh, it's compelling enough that it would be, it's our duty as nurses to implement something as best practice, regardless of whether or not it's risky because the evidence is overwhelmingly pointing us in one direction. If something is good and consistent or good and conflicting, it's going to take us to this question, what is the level of risk or potential harm if the intervention is implemented? And if it's low, then we would be able to move forward with considering a pilot of the change or maybe further investigation. However, if the risk is high, we might want to take a step back and there might be no indication for change. Similarly, like I had said before, if there's little to no evidence, the level of risk doesn't matter and we're still at that um, decision point where there's no indication for change. So after we've um, looked at each of those boxes, we've picked um, the next step, either change is indicated, pilot change, or no change. We're just gonna select that on the very bottom of the tool and it's gonna tell us where to go next. So we're either gonna go to section one, which is to assess for organizational translation, or we're gonna go to section two, meaning that we know we're not gonna translate this information, but we do probably wanna come up with some next steps. Maybe we wanna watch and wait um, and see what comes out in the literature. Maybe we wanna design a research study. There's other options if we end up in that bucket. Okay, so this sounds like a really helpful tool. It looks relatively simple, but it sounds like it's really helping us to come to some decisions and lead us towards the next steps. Yeah, it really helps us think through all of the components of the evidence and what that's going to look like on the ground, like that level of risk, so that we know very concretely what we need to do next. Okay, so let's let's try both paths, but starting with um, going to section one, changes indicated, or we're going to consider a pilot of the change. So moving on to page two then here, can you talk to us about the feasibility, fit, and acceptability chart we have here? Yep. So just like in our evidence appraisal tool, this is walking us through um, some sort of a thought process about whether what this change might look like for our specific setting. So is it something that is feasible? Um, I think we had talked before about what if the evidence says that we need to have one-on-one -on -one nursing, one nurse, one patient in any setting, um, any time of day. Well, we know that's not probably feasible, right? Um, we It might be best practice, but our staffing doesn't allow it, our um, billing doesn't allow it, so it's, our spacing doesn't allow it. Think how many nurses we'd have at the hospital if we had one per patient. Um, and so that change wouldn't necessarily be feasible. Um, and so on the tool itself, it's kind of, it defines feasibility, and then it gives you some checkboxes that you would need to be able to tick for it to be considered feasible. And then it's, we go through the same thing with both the fit and the acceptability. So when we're thinking about fit, we're thinking about um, does it actually make sense with the end user, in our case, mostly nurses? Does it make sense with their workflow? Um, and do we think that we're adequately addressing the problem with the solution that we came to? And again, there's a series of tick boxes to sort of help you think through that. Um, and then finally, acceptability. So do we want 
So it's something considered um, acceptable to not only the end users, but leadership and patients. Um, a good example of this is we, um, in the emergency department, started um, training nurses to do ultrasound-guided IVs. And while it was considered feasible, we, the evidence shows that we can do it, we knew we had the bandwidth, um, there was a little bit of back and forth about whether it's um, putting that extra burden on the nurses made sense. That was a fit question as well as the providers in the emergency department needed to have a certain number of ultrasound guided lines under their belts um, to move forward through the residency. So that wasn't necessarily acceptable from the medical side. So we had to figure out how we were going to balance all those things and make the practice change um, feasible, fit, and acceptable in our setting. Okay. So there's a lot going on here, this little, this little chart. Yeah. So I have a question about these. So in some of the earlier um, tools, um, you you had check boxes, but you didn't need them all to be checked in order to make a decision one way or another about the question at hand. So in this particular item, is it the same way? You could have two out of the three boxes checked, or do you have to have all of the boxes checked in order to decide whether something is feasible, fits, and is acceptable? Um, so that's a really good question. And I think that you would want to be able to check all the boxes, but if you think about it, you might be able to make a really small tweak to actually be able to make something fit um, or fit in any of the acceptability or feasibility categories. Um, and so um, we, when we're looking at feasibility, one of the examples is the change is low risk. Well, the change might not be low risk, right? There might be um, some other things associated with it that we're going to want to consider. And so these are just, we want to make sure then that if we are um, making a recommendation for change, we are addressing the issue of risk. And so these are really things that you need to make sure you're addressing, whether you're um, purposefully ignoring them for good reason and you're sort of um, going to address that with your recommendations, or you're like, yep, no problem. We definitely, this definitely works for our setting. And then that's going to be what you use to generate your organization or your setting specific translation recommendations. Okay. And is that where you would make notes regarding things like that in the organization specific recommendations box below that little chart? Yep. So what we're going to do here is we're going to have take, we're going to think back to what our liter, what the evidence-based recommendations are. So again, completely devoid of our setting. What does the literature say we should do? And then we're going to sort of put it through this filter of risk and we're going to put it through this filter of feasibility, fit, and acceptability. And then what comes out the other end is what makes sense for our organization and we're actually going to be able to implement. Again, thinking if the literature shows that we should have one nurse per patient, what is that end going to end up looking like in our organization? Because Sometimes the best evidence recommendations and the organization-specific recommendations are carbon copies of each other, and sometimes there's a good amount of um, tweaking to make something fit for our organization. And I know I have said this previously, but that's also what's nice about recording those evidence-based recommendations without taking into consideration your setting, because things like um, feasibility, fit, and acceptability can all change over time. So what's considered um, acceptable right now may not be considered acceptable in five years from now. And there have been some projects I've seen that they generated recommendations. We didn't um, follow them for various reasons, and now we've actually updated policies to follow those recommendations because the situation has changed. Okay. So there's one other item on this second page here. It says Section 2. So 
this sounds like it would be used if we decided that there isn't an indication for change in this situation, but we may have some other options. What do we do with this box here? Exactly. So there's two different ways we could have ended up here. We could have ended up here if we have little to no evidence or if we have good but conflicting information and it's a high risk change. So if either of those situations happen, we might end up here where we know we're not going to make a practice change, but we probably want to do something. So we might want to design a research study or we might want to look at things like other community standards to see what the community is doing, sort of what's considered um, to be standard of care. Um, this also might be where we actually want to contribute to the state of the science, state of the literature on a topic, and are going to design our own research study. So just because we've um, ended up in no practice change indicated doesn't mean that we just, um, you know, take our ball and go home. We still are going to do other things. They just are probably are not going to be translation to the, our specific setting. So we just didn't want to lose the, the next steps um, in case you end up in that no practice change indicated. Because honestly, it can be a little deflating to have done a huge EVP and get to the end and find out, well, we actually just don't have enough information, which has happened to me, I can tell you right now. Um, but being able to know that there's, there are still additional steps to take and you can actually add to the body of literature on a subject is um, kind of an exciting next step to take. Well, that sounds like a good, a good decision point one any way or another. Okay. So we're going to move on to the third page now. So this page is headed with action planning. So it looks like we have some choices here. Tell us about these choices. So this is, um, again, helping us if we think back to our Appendix A, which had a, um, the Gantt chart, which helped us plan um, who was going to do what when. This is sort of similar, again, in that it's helping us with project planning. And really, we would use this tool either if we're going to make a practice change or maybe if we actually wanted to do a research study or things like that, that would still have some next steps associated with it. So this helps us determine um, some next steps like getting a project leader, getting some change champions, things like that, as well as thinking through what our resources are, what are potential barriers, and how we might want to overcome them. So we're really pivoting from an evidence-based practice literature review um, approach to starting to switch into more um, implementation and quality improvement work, where we're going to have project planning and really on the ground address local issues and determine how we're going to um, help them work for us to make the change happen. Okay, so I can see this is, is a place where you can completely flesh out your next steps. Yeah, and it also starts to think through, like, who is going to be affected and what will be affected. So, for example, if we want to actually build something into the EHR to reflect best practice, we're going to have to think about who would have to approve that, who would have to be involved. And so our project planning moves from completing the EBP into what concrete steps need to happen to make a change happen on the ground. Okay. And it looks like it continues on with the following page, page four with outcomes measures and specifying your types of outcomes and work breakdown. Yes. What so can you tell uh, us about that? we again are sort of shifting into the actual project implementation. So we think about what the goal of the project is. And a lot of this um, is similar to if you've ever seen the A3 project management tool. There's a lot of similar information here as there are as there is on that tool. So we're trying to figure out what is our goal. Are we trying to reduce the rate of something? Are we trying to improve a score? Um, how are we just 
what are we trying to change, and then how are we going to measure it? So if we aren't able to measure something, we have no idea whether we've been successful or not. So we're going to create some concrete goals as well as the type of outcomes that we want to look at. And on this tool, there are just some examples. Um, there's clinical outcomes, functional outcomes, perceptual outcomes, which um, speaks to things like satisfaction, experience. We have process and intervention outcomes, as well as organization or unit-based outcomes. And so, again, the team, you don't have to pick all of these, but rather um, focus in on a couple things that you know are going to help you determine um, if you've been successful in the actual implementation, which can sometimes be measured by uptake, like if we're going to be using a new tool, using a new piece of equipment, things like that. And then the, um, the, eventual, the eventual outcome metrics, um, which are things like fall rates, satisfaction, um, are you, what sort of like at the very end, are you able to influence that measurement? Okay. And then work breakdown structure is just pretty much assigning tasks. Yep. So you're thinking through high level deliverables. Sometimes but people also refer to them as milestones. So what are the really big things that need thing, big things that need to happen? So um, in the example we talked about before, if you need to build something into the electronic health record, the EHR, maybe one of the high level deliverables is to get in front of the group that um, makes those decisions and approvals. And so that would be your high-level task. You would have some associated and subtasks, like probably figuring out who that group is, emailing them, getting them getting on their agenda, putting together the actual presentation, sort of making your case. So those are all sub-steps to be able to get that approval. And then putting in your start date, your end date, when you hope to have it accomplished, as well as who is responsible. If the whole team is responsible, it also means that the whole team isn't responsible. So usually it's helpful to have one specific or two specific people take on a component so you know who to hold accountable um, and for either the success or lack thereof of that specific step. That sounds like a good a good reflection to to set forward to have a specific person identified as the lead for any particular item. Yeah, for sure. There's a um, a saying I've heard that the fastest way to starve a dog is to tell two people to feed it. Um, so if you have too many people assigned to a task, everyone kind of assumes the other person's going to do it and um, that nothing gets done. I'm going to remember that one. Yeah. As a dog lover, I feel kind of weird saying it, but I know. I, it resonates. Yes. Um, okay. So is there anything else on this particular tool that you feel like we should know, something that you want to highlight? Um, so I think that sometimes people um, don't necessarily – fill out this tool completely or they kind of get to the, they do the first half and then it kind of like peters out. Um, but I will say that this is um, the actual planning, the translation and the action planning are what you've worked your entire, done the entire EDP for is to actually make that practice change. And so I would pay a good amount of attention to this step. It's meant to make your um, translation as easy as possible, not only in determining what it should be, but how it's going to look. And then there is, um, again, just like all the other tools, there are instructions. So if you're a little unclear about what to do, you can just go to the last pages of the tool. It's going to give you more information about each of the components, and it'll help you determine um, how to fill it out. So the action planning section is actually useful either way, whether um, this is a question I'm making it a statement, but so whether or not you decide um, this is something that you're going to take action on is new practice or move into a different project, you can still use the action planning section either way? 
Yeah, for sure. You definitely, I mean, it's very rare that we would have a project that we would find no evidence and then just walk away from completely. Like, the problem isn't gone, right? The problem is still there. I mean, maybe some magical thing happened in the background and all of a sudden, regardless of your EVP, the problem is solved. But you still have that clinical problem, and so you are going to need to come up with some next steps to continue to address it. So um, having the action planning could be um, to actually put something into place that was based on the evidence, or maybe it is to write a, to start a research project or do some other intermediary steps to be able to still focus on what you need to fix. Okay, that's great. Anything else that we should know before we wrap this one up? Um, just again, remember that this is a team approach and your team at this this, this juncture might shift a little bit because when you're starting to think about implementation, you're no longer necessarily thinking about the people that you need to read articles and define the problem, but rather people who are actually going to be helpful in putting something into practice. And it can be helpful a little bit to think back to that stakeholder analysis tool as well so that you know who would maybe need to be onboarded and give their approval. Um, and so that team can start to shift a little bit as we shift more, again, into implementation, quality improvement methodologies. Okay, excellent. Good to know. So um, we're going to um, close this discussion about um, this particular tool and want to let you know that if you do have any questions or concerns or um, ideas about new projects, you can reach out to the Center for Nursing Inquiry. We are on the intranet at hopkinsmedicine.org, Nursing Center for Nursing Inquiry. You can Google Center for Nursing Inquiry, and when you get to our homepage, you can find our menu has, under the Inquiry Toolkit item listing, all of the appendices that we've been talking about here, and they are in PDF or Word form. You can also email us at nursinginquiry at jhmi.edu. So thanks for talking with us about Appendix H.